This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast. We are bringing you an absolute fire episode today with... My LinkedIn buddy, Ms. Crystal Ware, from the Hello. great state of Texas. We, um, you know, it, it's weird because I mean, I feel like we know each other so well. We've talked like once in person, but you follow people all over the internet these days, and you know, if you do it right, uh, some of my best friends are people that I've never met in person, which is kind of weird and creepy in the same way. But like, um, very rarely do you see people. You know, not even COVID related, just because of geography. But anyhow, Crystal has an interesting path. She is actually an attorney who has found her way into the insurance industry and as a producer, not even on like the, the company side. So why don't you take just a couple seconds to sort of give everybody your uh, backstory, you know, I guess for lack of a better term of, of sort of how you started out and how you got to where you are. And then we're going to camp out with the kind of stuff that you're doing and what you're seeing out in the marketplace. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Kyle and David, today. I'm very excited. So, um, yeah, I went to law school without any big plans or ultimate goal other than wanting to advocate and help people. That's really the kind of like the broad generalization. And I found myself, as probably 75% of attorneys do, working in an in- insurance defense firm. Um, for the real insurance nerds, I'd say it's PI, protection and indemnity, working with vessel owners and uh, P&I clubs. And so I did that for about a year, um, realized that billing hours was not that great. I had some opportunities looking out there and what came to fruition was really um, working in the insurance industry as a claims advocate for uh, large uh, companies with big wet liability uh, vessel exposures and things of that nature. Then I transitioned from claims because I wanted to see the full spectrum into account executive work. Uh, From there, I jumped over to the company side and doing uh, risk management for two uh, publicly traded Fortune 500 companies uh, and then thought with all that uh, knowledge and skill that I built up, I could really serve um, small and mid-sized businesses better in a, a boutique agency. And so that's kind of how I quickly came from, it was years and years and years, but how very quickly uh, for the podcast listeners, I came from uh, being an attorney to here I am, uh, agency owner and producer. Nice. And you focus predominantly on what? So uh, predominantly uh, being in Houston, Texas, uh, we're an energy-related energy hub. And so that is primarily energy uh, difficult risks, uh, wet liability, all of those kind of things um, would be kind of my expertise and background. And then that kind of goes off into tangential areas uh, with construction, construction with energy related, um, and things of that nature. That's interesting. I've, I've got a, an energy client out in Texas, um, and I was wondering what you know. It, it, that's just the thing out there. Uh, they're they're just outside of they're just outside of Houston. Um, uh, Mur- no, not Murphy. Um, I can't remember where it's spring. 
Oh yeah, that's basically yeah. that is basically Houston these days okay. with the city sprawl. So it is a suburb Got of it. Houston. Yep. So what from your your um, you know history doing the risk management stuff? How, like how did that help you? I mean, that's obviously speaking our language here on power producers. I'm I'm curious what you took from from that role and, and how you brought that into what you're doing currently. Yeah, that's a great question. So essentially, I know when we're going to our client and we're asking for data, we're asking for, uh, you know, complete this uh, here. What are your exposures? Um, what kind of risks are you facing? Uh, those are all the questions that I've grappled with myself in working and being the front person for placing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of insurance for companies. Um, and so I know what's the next question, you know. Um, it's not just let's present what's in front of us. Let's, you know, push paper from point A to point B. Let's dive deeper. Let's ask questions. What are the right questions to ask? Because oftentimes uh, the client doesn't know, you know, a client doesn't know what information off the bat to give us. They bought a new asset. What do they need to give us? We have to ask. We have to drive that bus for them. And it's, you know, knowing if you're putting together the right program what the risks are, what risk factors you need to talk about with them, if it's stuff they want to self-insure. it's It all boils down in my mind to what are the right questions. If you can ask the right questions, you are light years ahead. So it's funny because you say, you know, what information should our clients give us? My first response to that is, I just like for them to tell me they bought something. <laughs> we don't even know that they're buying things or, you know, my all time favorite is I had a client one time, um, call me on a Monday morning early before the office was open. So I already knew it was an issue. And the, the question that came out of his mouth was what happens if I used one of my dump trucks over the weekend, uh, in the Christmas parade and there was, no, 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 no. I thought, issue. I thought, I thought it was what, what, what happens if I use my dump truck? Not like it was past tense. It was like, what what happens if I use it on Saturday? And, and, he's like, and I said Saturday, and he says, "Yeah, yeah, last Saturday." He was, but but it was in past tense, and so that that, that, that pretty much sums up, uh, you, know, you know, why it is you have to stay in touch with people on a regular basis. But you know, I've always well, even been, uh, let me let me pause you there and ahead. say even better, even better. If you if you love those kind of stories, how about this? How about somebody calls you and says, "I'm working on an acquisition." Uh, there we're going to take over their workers' compensation plan. We're not buying the whole asset 100%. We're, we're literally, our, our, we're not buying the whole legal entity, excuse me. We're just buying an asset. Oh, we can put our workers, we can just roll their workers' compensation claims into our program, right? No. How did you structure the deal? What is the language? And looking at the language, they were the, the, the seller was, was trying to really get um, the claims to be um, taken over by the buyer. And that is pretty much not possible to do. Uh, and so we need our clients to talk to us in advance because sometimes they run into these weird, unusual contractual scenarios. And without working with the right person, the right person with the technical expertise and talking to them in advance, uh, you are going to find yourself in a really challenging position. So that's, that's interesting. I mean, because obviously as an attorney, you're looking at contracts all the time and you know, insurance is a contract. So I would have to imagine exactly. that's had a massive impact on your effectiveness. Well, yeah, I think my my question is in what I've always thought made people cuz we've had, you know, Adam Serwinski is a recovering attorney, right? <laughs> we've had a couple people on the show that are that are attorneys um, by degree. You ask questions differently when you're an attorney. You don't mm -hmm. you know, and and I think I use it loosely, but I, I think there's a lot of power in the fact that if you view going into a new client appointment as you're going like you're going into a deposition and you plan your questions ahead of time and you plan your follow-up questions ahead of time it makes the it makes the uh, meeting go much much smoother but it also gives you time to like anticipate literally everything and you when you first start going down that road because for me I have a legal pad that looks like a a, a tree diagram of everything that I do. Here's my question. And then we could do this way or this way. And then here's the sub questions off of that. And it's just a jumbled mess on the paper, but it makes perfect sense to me. And it's almost like a choose your own adventure book, depending on how the client answers, how I'm going to go, go through that diagram. But you know, one of the things that I think that, um, I, that, that legal training gives you more than anything else is the ability to ask 
clear and concise questions that in many cases only require a yes or no answer. And that keeps it much easier for a client to respond to. Now, obviously, if you're having to ask questions about values or whatever else, that's a different story. But for all practical purposes, learning about their business, learning about their operations, and just understanding how to develop a proper line of questioning has to be a huge advantage for you. I absolutely think so. And and I tell people, I talk to a lot of uh, young people or, um, you know, new recent college graduates about what are options and trying to talk about, you know, how insurance really can be cool and sexy. Um, and I tell, always tell people my law background has been a huge advantage to me, but it does not mean you need a law background to do what we're doing. If you surround yourself with good mentors and other people, you know, a lot of what we're done, it's just that we got three extra years, right. In law school to be trained on how to dig out the right facts, how to ask the right follow-up questions, and where we want to go and how we lead the horse to water. Um, it's not, it's really not rocket science. I mean, unless you are like an IP attorney in rocket science field, but yeah, no. <laughs> most of it's not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think there's an art to it. And it's something that unless you have that training, you don't even recognize that it's an art. Yep. And it, and it helps also to be, you want to talk about characteristics that may be predispose you to being, uh, you know, really good as a salesperson or a, uh, a insurance producer, um, being naturally curious. So you don't, you know, we're having a conversation. You ask me question one, and then I say yes or no. What's the follow-up? Is there more? How do we go further? Naturally curious people. And that's, you know, I'm also a naturally curious people. I, just give me in front of Google and I cannot stop myself in the evenings. My husband is like, please get off the Google. Stop, stop going, going down <laughs> rabbit holes because I'm like, oh, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? So probably when I start talking about insurance to people, uh, especially if you're talking to, you know, a CFO or somebody that doesn't, you know, insurance is like, this tiny little sliver of what they do in their job. They're probably sick of me after 30 minutes, but you know, it just, we can go, we can go on and on. My number one rabbit hole is watching reality show auditions for like American Idol, The Voice (laughs) and all of that on YouTube. And then I get into the international versions and I have no idea what the heck they're even saying half the time, but I just get lost listening to all of this stuff. It's it's crazy. I, I don't give me hours. more ideas. I don't need more ideas on where to. <laughs> Didn't know that was the rabbit holes. Times. I would not have guessed that uh, the American Idol Europe were, or whatever whatever edition. <laughs> so Croatia. in full disclosure, yeah, in, in, in full disclosure, lost a couple hours last night because as we were t- when we were talking about um, Ciara's dad, yes, uh, yesterday, I immediately was looking for. I was looking for recordings of my way in Spanish after we were talking about it. And then I'm out. Like once that (laughs) happened, I'm watching all kinds of stuff. So that's amazing. You know, the energy sector is interesting to me because that is a very cyclical business segment from what I understand. I don't play in it. I mean, the closest thing that we have had other than Kyle's, uh, staffing company that that he represents. It's the, the Kyle's Nutella. solar company. <laughs> it was, was Kyle's solar company. Yeah, we so we had one that that built the. Um, I'm just trying to get solar. content for the for the pod, man. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah, they they built the big solar fields, mm-hmm. and so that's not really what I'm talking about. Uh, so, but the oil and the gas. Every time I talk to somebody from Texas, you know. It's either we're all in on oil and gas or I don't want anything to do with oil and gas because I got burnt so bad. So how do you hedge that? How, as you guys have built the agency and continue to build the agency, being in an area where energy is certainly by far probably the top revenue generating industry in Texas, I would imagine, how do you spread your risk so that you don't get whaled on? Well, and Houston has largely diversified itself over the last 10 or 15 years, which has been a beautiful thing. So when we think about everything else that goes and and what, you know, a foundational industry has to offer, you think also about, you know, you have office space, um, you know, which I I call, (laughs) you know, oil and gas energy is heavily technical driven. Then we have the Main Street America 
um, coverages and, and kind of portfolio of clients. And that would be, you know, small business owners that have a small portfolio of retail, of office buildings. Um, you may have some medical. Houston is actually one of the top medical centers in the world as well. So from there, you have a small um, EMS companies, you have uh, regional treatment centers, other industries. And then in the last two years, there has really been a push for Houston as a, as a, in general, as a city to diversify into tech and doing things that bring on um, tech companies and make tech companies interested to move into Houston. Um, so it's actually really not that hard to diversify. Uh, once people see that you're doing a good job, especially in a niche hard, challenging industry like energy. Um, they're apt to tell, you know, if it's a CFO, they're going to tell their friends, lawyers tell their lawyer friends who have other clients in other industries. And then you just end up with um, a good uh, referral pipeline. Uh, but that's that's really what we've sought to do is make sure that we have a, a good balanced book. I don't think that energy, traditional energy is going to go by the wayside in the next 10 or 20 years anyway. Um, but it is difficult and you do, you know, have to stay on top of the trends of what's going on. One of the trends going on right now is of course, um, carriers just pulling out for ESG reasons or other reasons. And I think that is really what the challenge is. Not so much the boom and bust of our clients and does your, your, your business base erode, but really, um, how do we support them when our carrier partners are moving away from us? Yeah. I mean, I think probably not very many small claims in that sector of the business either, is there? I mean, for all practical purposes, when you're dealing with energy on a workers' comp side, yeah, you're going to have typical, you know, small claims, nuisance claims, I call them, or whatever else. But I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cat exposure across the board, whether it be pollution or, you know, something from a GL perspective, or even on the workers' comp side. And so to me, that's, from a carrier's perspective, I can see how that's very similar to a lot of what we deal with, depending on the class of business here in Florida, just ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows. And, you know, the other thing too, is as the price of oil fluctuates, that determines kind of what happens in terms of operations of those entities, I imagine. Absolutely. And so one trend, uh, so you're talking about work comp. So one trend that we have seen over, you know, 20 or 30 year uh, period is that when oil goes down, so then you know maybe some layoffs are coming, uh, and people that work in the oil field they recognize these patterns themselves, and all of a sudden you see a you know a tick up in your workers' comp, uh, and so then you have to investigate and, and find out if those are fraudulent work comp or they work comp that may not have other been re wise been reported because it's really you know a small scrape a cut or something, but they are worried about getting let go and they want to hold on with a worker's compensation claim. So that's absolutely something that companies um, that see the commodities price dropping need to be aware of and start looking out for. Uh, Which but, is an interesting like thought process. I, I think if I was worried about letting go, I, I don't know that I would go out and make sure that I was able to file a claim on the company. <laughs> like, I mean, that might accelerate my departure. No. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. Um, and I think that there have just been some pods of people that have done this over the years. And so kind of the employee base um, looks at that, you know, similar to um, plaintiff's attorneys that go out and look for uh, a certain class of business. Well, then they're talking to their friends and family about it. Similar thing. Oh, I filed a workers comp and, and maybe, it, you know, it kept them in a job for a little longer because they had an active claim and they didn't want, you know, to then get some kind of lawsuit. Um, but other reasons and allow them have, some time to find something else in, in, yes. in the meantime, that, that part makes sense, I guess. Yeah. And so it's just the trend. I mean, if you pulled the data, you could definitely see trends in that. Interesting. Um, so how so do they combat that? Just making sure that your OSHA reporting, your regular reporting, your safety precautions, uh, are being followed. So if you have an employee, you know, what you should do, if there is any kind of injury, even if it is really a cut, you monitor it, you write, is there an issue, you know, follow up, do your normal reporting. Um, you know, on small things, that's not always done by, you know, on the, in the field. And so uh, that's the best way to have something on record to say, um, you know, whatever happens two weeks down the road, and now they filed a claim. And uh, well, is there any 
documentation about what really happened. Could this have been a non-site or non-work time claim that they're trying to now manipulate into a claim uh, because they see it as a way to hold on to some pay for a couple of months that maybe they wouldn't otherwise get in a layoff? it, it, It can be tricky, but I think if you just follow the company's you know, normal procedures, that's the best way uh, to prevent it. And then some, if you have the instance where uh, somebody that's secure in their job may not report a small claim, there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, if it's a, if it's a legitimate claim, it's a legitimate claim. So we were talking about this. I had a call a little bit earlier with um, somebody from one of the agencies that's in Killing Commercial that's a benefits producer, which is kind of weird, right? Most people don't talk to me about benefits, but um, her agency principal is a good friend of mine and wanted me to have her go through the curriculum because he wanted her to see the prospecting and marketing pieces and stuff for it. And so for those of you that are listening and, and you don't know how it's structured, the people who go through that course can't go from one module to the other unless it's manually unlocked. And the only way that that happens is to have a conversation with me to make sure that they've understood what it is that I've talked about and that they have plans for implementation and execution. And, you know, one of my things, and, and so the conversation started out with, you know, I, don't, I do benefits. I don't, don't do much PNC, but I did pick up a couple of things from the um, marketing module and the, and the prospecting module. And I said, well, that that's good. I said, I, I think that the stuff that's in there is relatively universal. And her comment was, well, I don't really like to cold call. <laughs> well, be a little a bit of a problem, <laughs> be a little bit of a problem for an outside producer. Um, <laughs> but what she really, she goes, I'm just not good with scripts and all of this other stuff. And I was like, oh, you don't like to tell a market. I said, you have to understand when you say cold call to me, that means I'm just going to walk up in somebody's lobby, introduce myself and, and try and, and have a quick conversation Whereas to me, you know, if I'm doing it on the phone, that's telemarketing. That's not, I realize some people use the chain, the term interchangeably, but cold calling to me is in person. And even though you can call somebody cold on the phone, I always just call it, you know, appointment setting, telemarketing, whatever else. And so I said, you know, well, cold call me. <laughs> I pulled the old Wolf of Wall Street on her and said, sell me this pen, you know, but no, I, I, I told her, I said, cold call me. Tell, tell me what you would lead with. And like, I completely caught her off guard by asking that question. And I said, I think there's more synergy between PNC and benefits than you realize. And so we started down that conversation and I said, you know, I happen to know that your agency principal is a really savvy workers comp guy. And I said, so he's probably prospecting based around workers comp, right? She said, yeah. And I said, he probably has an idea who has the high mods and who doesn't have the high mods right? Yes. And I said, so you ever done a study to see how many businesses with high mods have crappy benefits? And it's like, that's a good idea. And I said, well, I have, <laughs> I have, I know, I, I know that if I go in, I mean, that that's a natural progression in my line of questioning. When I get into a new business appointment, if the mod is bad, Talk to me about your employee benefits program. Talk to me about what that looks like. You know, because what I've seen happen over the course of my career, obviously, is that if a company does not have robust benefits, if the plans are not rich, they they have too high a deductible, the max out of pocket is out of line, the co-pays are are ridiculous, or they don't have some sort of a voluntary program for short-term and long-term disability or provide that stuff for them, then there's a high likelihood that if somebody gets hurt over the weekend and they don't have the money to go to the doctor because of the way the benefits program is structured, you're going to have a Monday morning workers' comp claim. And I've seen it you know, several dozen times, honestly, over the time that I've been doing this. you know, It's, it's a plumber who pulls their back on Monday morning, pulling a water heater off of the back of a truck. And so it's a natural way to open that conversation to say, you know, look, I'm not calling you by accident. I realize that that I'm a, a benefits uh, agent and that that's what I what I do. So you think it's irrelevant, but I looked at your workers' compensation and you've got an experience modification factor that's spiraling out of control. And in our experience, we've come to understand that that could directly correlate to the benefits or the lack thereof 
that you have for your employees. And specifically, Aflac and Lincoln and some of these others have have put out statistics that say that the loss ratio drops by as much as 65% or yeah, 67. But it's 60 it, it is 65 because I have the graphic. If you have a short-term a uh, short-term disability policy in place because if you take that injured worker, now your examples yeah, your examples are for job security. So this doesn't directly correlate to that. But if you take that injured worker who has gotten hurt over the weekend doing something at home and now it's Monday morning, they've got a decision to make. Do I file a worker's comp claim or don't I? And if you have short-term disability, guess what? They could file a claim with the short-term disability company, get it paid, and have their money a whole lot quicker than going through the comp system. And they didn't jeopardize their job by lying about a worker's comp claim. So it would be interesting to see. I mean, you guys do benefits in your agency too. As you go out in your sales approach, how intertwined is benefits with the PNC arm of your operation? So for mine, I definitely really, yeah, we we definitely, I try to always talk to it, talk about them intertwined um, with all new prospects right out of the gate. Um, and we are working actively to bolster that with our benefits team as well and our other PNC folks. Um, you know, sometimes people feel more comfortable with it than others. And we're trying to create some, you know, uh, cheat sheets, so to speak, with, you know, things like that, where you have some dot points to talk about right away, because there is interconnectivity there. Absolutely. I mean, and you just talking about that, and I think you referenced earlier to uh, Kyle having a staffing agency. I mean, right off the bat, I think about that. Like staffing agencies historically, you know, a, you know, they provide some kind of benefit to their employees, but it's not the best. It's not the most robust. Um, and staffing agencies are hard to place, and their work comp is challenging to place. Um, so, could we do a better job in uh, pulling a bigger picture program together? And talking to people about that, um, that's, you know, excellent. Yeah, I, you know, I look at some of the deals that I've done over the course of my career, and some of the best deals I've done have always been in tandem with a benefits producer coming with me. You know, do I understand the talking points? Absolutely. Could I write the coverage? Absolutely. But I don't. Because in my mind, when I launched Florida Risk, it was 100% PNC, period. And I didn't want to have to build out the back end for it. And truthfully, I'm not that smart. You know, there's a lot of things that change in the regulations in all of this legislation that happens regarding benefits. And, you know, this is not a political statement by any stretch of the imagination. But when Obamacare came out, that was like an easy excuse for me to say, you know what, that's it. I'm out of here. This, with this comes way more than I'm ever going to have, you know, be willing to memorize and try and implement it made way more sense for me just to establish a joint venture with a ben benefits firm. Let them do it. They do it a hundred percent of the time. I don't, you know, I, I'm not, this, it's not something that you should be dabbling in. And, you know, I think that as PNC producers, we need to remember that, right? Like even if you're in these agent in, in an agency where you have the ability to sell everything, that means it's a good idea. That It doesn't mean that you need to try and sell everything. It means your agency does, Line yourself up with the best benefits producer or the one that you have the best um, synergy with so that when you go into appointments, you can play off of each other. I've always felt like it's easier to close a deal when you have somebody else there that you can bounce back and forth with in addition to yourself. And if you've got that benefits person, 401k and retirement is another one. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's somebody that's internal or external to your firm. You know, financial planners and retirement people are also huge referral sources for me, especially if they don't place product. So I can go in. And I mean, Crystal, it's crazy to think about this, but I can go in and ask a question as simple as when's the last time the investment policy statement on your 401k plan has been reviewed? And they stare at me like I've got an eyeball in the middle of my forehead. And the fact is that probably 85 or 90% of the companies out there have that investment policy statement structured when the 401k is launched, and then it never gets looked at again. And my follow-up to that is, when's the last time you reviewed your fund selection in the Morningstar style box to make sure there's no style drift in the funds? Never. 
like very, very rarely. And so I go down this road because I was trained to ask those questions very early in my career. Now, I don't have the ability to fulfill the need should I uncover it, but I've got the person who is able to fulfill that. And, and my favorite one is, just out of curiosity, so I have it for my notes, where's the fidelity bond for your 401k written? Is that with Travelers or Hartford? I can't tell you how many middle market accounts I have opened up because we found out the fidelity bond was expired. It's or the insane. crime. You can you could replace it with the crime. But yes, yeah. Yeah, or yeah, or or they have a um, you know, they have a crime policy and the right. 401k is not endorsed on it. Right? So, I mean, just crazy little things like that. And you know, it's but what but what has happened to me over the course of my career and this is what I like to challenge people to do all the time. And that is get it away from the insurance, right? I think I, I'm a 100% believer that on any given day, anybody can walk into anybody else's account. And if you dig deep enough, you're going to find a mistake somewhere. And it may not be the producer that made it. It might be something on the service end. It may be something that th that's not on the policy at all because the client didn't tell you the information, but you also didn't ask the question to get that information. So I, I believe that if you, you, you hang your hat on that, you can go in and you can win accounts by simply going in and auditing insurance policies. That's a grotesque way to make a living, in my opinion. Like, it's not fun. Um, it certainly doesn't mean you need to have a good personality and be able to go out and meet people and be persuasive in your approach and all of that. But there's a way to do it. Do it. And I think that as we come into this industry, we go get our designations, we start, um, you know, putting things into practice. That's a natural place to go. Let me have a copy of your policies. Let me review them and see uh, how everything lays out. As you get more mature in your career as a producer, it becomes less and less about the policies. Not that the policies aren't important. Not that we're not doing everything we can to make sure that we're asking the right questions and we're structuring correctly. But at the point of sale, the insured doesn't care. I really don't think that they do. I think that what the insured wants to know is that they have coverage. And that's what helps them sleep at night. And they're going to put their faith in us that we know what we're doing and can structure the policy the correct way. Because if there's, you know, let's let's look at it as if there's a broker selection arrangement going on, okay? Broker selection's happening. There's three agencies, four agencies in there competing. The one thing every single one of us has in common is the fact that we can place the insurance for them. And so what are we doing to focus on what makes us uncommon in the common environment? And that's why I'm so heavily angled toward going in and talking about soft costs and total cost of risk and all of the other things that go into what ultimately determines the amount of premium that client's paying. Because when it comes to insurance, really the two questions in my career that I think people that I have surmised people think about the most is, do I have coverage and how much is it going to cost me? Like I've never had a client, very, very rarely, unless, let me put it to you this way. If a client ever comes to me and says, hey, do I have endorsement, blah, 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 blah. My first question is not, yet, or answer is not yes or no. It's please send me a copy yeah, of the contract do you need it? requiring that because I know you yeah. don't know that endorsement. Yeah, no, and what you're talking about is exactly right. And I, I would challenge everybody who really wants to be successful in, um, you know, being a great broker partner to their clients and having a great agency is whether or not you are really happy to be transactional. I just want to sell a policy. Or do you want to be service, consulted, a great consulting partner and bringing something more relationship-driven, um, trust-oriented uh, to, you know, the, the, the business and to your clients? Because if it's just about transactions, then anybody can come in and have a better transaction. And if we just talk about price, you know, there's always going to be a hard market time and how are you going to win business? And that's right now, really, the market is not 
that favorable in, in most lines of coverage. And if you're just talking about a dollar, that's only a winning strategy. They're, just like oil and gas, insurance goes up and down, up and down, up and down. And it's great if it's on the way down. You can go to your, uh, you know, competitors and win with a dollar savings. Uh, but eventually, that's going to turn around. And what are you going to do then? If you've positioned yourself to only be a price-driven um, competition, then when the price is not favorable for you, what are you going to do? What do you have to hang your hat on? Yeah, and you know what? I don't say this to brag. But there are plenty of times, most times, honestly, that when I get hired, the insurance costs more. Because it's the right. It's, it's right? what they need. People want to pay more to know that they... Yeah, absolutely. Okay, if, if, if I have a policy uh, for cyber and I'm paying $100 and there's zero ransomware coverage, okay, what <laughs> is that really going to do for me? Would I rather pay $1,000 and have ransomware coverage? Those... and. And I just don't think that people are always um, comfortable talking about those things. And that's that's where you see some friction. And we have to be comfortable having conversations saying the thing that maybe the client doesn't want to hear, aka the price is going to go up. And I actually lead with that all the time. This is what you have. In working with me, I'm not telling you that I'm going to save you money or that your price is going to go down. I'm going to tell you that you're going to get the coverage that you want. And if you choose not to buy something, I'm going to clearly lay it out to you why this is either a good idea, you know, a business decision or a bad idea. Um, and those are the kind of conversations that people need to be comfortable having and get away from, I'm going to save you a dollar. Oh God, it drives me absolutely bananas. I'm going to save you a dollar. You know, yeah. One thing that I did th to sort of tweak a little bit, I never say the word price ever. I always use the word cost. And the reason why is I think cost is a softer way to say price. And when and, and when you do that, it also, you can lump other costs into the conversation that have to do with the insurance and the risk management function. Price is premium. Like, that's it. Like, there, there's no other cost I can do that. But when you're talking about cost and total cost of risk, now I can throw soft costs of claims in there. Now I can talk about those things. I can talk about the cost to bring in outside consultants and third-party risk managers as we begin to build our case for what those things cost. But I think that so many times, it's fear. It's fear on the part of the agent because they don't want to have the conversation about price. They, they don't want to be the one to be the bearer of bad news. And so... Everything in our industry, in my mind, and I would love for people to convince me that I'm wrong, but I, I, this is one of those where I'll probably dig my heels in and, and disagree till the day I die. But the number one thing in our industry that has to happen is education. And it starts with agents going out and getting educated and taking continuing ed, especially with designations, seriously, so that you're constantly getting better. And then turning around and having the ability to share what you've learned with that prospect or your client, not just turn around and regurgitate it, but in a way that they can comprehend and understand it. Fear of not knowing what you're selling drives a lot of what's going on. Fear of talking about price is also something that drives a lot about what is going on, but we put self-induced pressure on ourselves that our client is going to bite our head off if we talk about how much the price and the premium is going to increase. And I've always said, from an educational perspective, this is people, I am telling you verbatim, Kyle Hauk on this podcast is going to agree with what I said because he's heard me say this dozens of times. When I talk with a client, the easiest way for me to bring up the increase in premium or cost is to say, look, market conditions are not that great right now. Let me talk to you about why and lay it out and say, if we leave your program structured the way that it is, it's going to go up. Let's talk about the steps you can take to insulate you from having as big of a price increase because I am a huge proponent of my client taking calculated risk. 
if if I can educate my client correctly, they have the ability to make an informed decision and take calculated, quantifiable risk and feel good about it. And what I mean by that is, I always use the same example too, and I've probably said it on the podcast before, I don't remember off the top of my mind, but homeowners. I, if I own a house and I paid $300,000 for my house and I have no note on that house and I don't have a bank telling me that I have to have them as lost payee, therefore don't have to have homeowner's insurance, I have some decisions I need to make. The first one is, do I want to buy insurance, yes or no? If the answer is, I'm not really sure yet, let's see how much it's going to cost, now I'm going to have decisions to make inside of that, Right. Do I want to take a $2,500 deductible? Do I want $5,000? Do I want $500? What does that do and how does that affect the premium? All of those things are great to look at. Or I could choose to say, you know what? I'm out. I'm not going to buy homeowners at all. Homeowners in Florida is ridiculous because now it's going to cost me $3,500 a year to insure my home. And I can remember a few years ago, it was only $1,500. This is insane. These insurance companies are screwing me, man. They're, 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 just, they're out to get me. They're, they, their sole purpose in life is to screw David over. Okay? And so I don't buy it. The one thing I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that if the hurricane comes through and it blows my house over, I just lost a $300,000 house. That's quantifiable. I can make a decision based on educated information that I'm not going to buy homeowner's insurance. I'm not saying that's a good decision by any stretch. My point to my clients is this. I don't care if you take risk or not, but take the risk that you can calculate and that you can quantify. Don't buy low limits. You know, if it comes between... I don't really think that I need an umbrella. Well, let's let's talk about the umbrella market for crying out loud. It is as bad as it's been in a long time right now across the entire country. I don't I don't necessarily want you to not buy an umbrella, but if you're okay taking some risk to bring the cost of that umbrella down, maybe you take a $50,000 self-insured or $100,000 self-insured retention so that you're on the hook for that money between your underlying and when the under uh, umbrella responds. And then you get your umbrella limits. But the people who go out and buy like on auto, the state minimum, and they don't understand that they're on the hook for everything above and beyond that policy when it pays out. I remember sitting in insurance class way back when I first got my license and the instructor told a story about how fast an insurance company can stroke a check when it comes to policy limits. He said, you got 10, 20, 10 on your car. They're going to write a check and walk away faster than you can blink. And I can tell you, until I saw it made sense, until I saw that happen firsthand, it didn't really register to the same level. I had a client, and I think I've talked about it on here before, but it was a big HVAC company, sixty uh, like 60 trucks. And when I engaged with them and took the account on, it was in bad shape, and they had um, they needed an umbrella. Period. I told him, I said, guys, you know, even if it's only five million, you really should have an umbrella with 60 trucks in your fleet. You have 60 billboards driving around the Bay Area every single day. You really should have it because you are putting everything you have worked so hard to build at risk. And this was not a small company, probably eight million in revenue a year. Owner didn't want the umbrella. I will never, and, and you know what? This is apropos for me to say this because I'm going to Key West tomorrow and this happened. I, three three years or four years ago, I don't remember which, Father's Day, Key West, I'm offshore fishing and come back in and my cell phone sounds like a slot machine going off. And I look and the very last text on my cell phone was, don't worry about calling, calling me back right away. He died when he got to the hospital. Well, now I'm like getting carpal tunnel, like fumbling through my phone as fast as I can to put this whole chain of events together. And what happened is that exact company had a guy, complete accident. He wasn't driving. He, You could say that he was driving carelessly. He wasn't texting when he was driving. He wasn't dr speeding. He was going the wrong way on a road, dipped into a neighborhood, did a UE at the mouth of the street, which I'm sure everybody listening to the podcast has done at one time or another. He was driving one of those transit vans that have an abnormally large blind spot, from what I understand. I, did, I don't have never driven one, so I don't know. But when he came back out to turn and go the other way, he pulled out to go into traffic, and a guy coming the other coming that same direction on a motorcycle hit him broadside, t-boned him, 
And guess what? This this gets so much better because it's CIC level claim scenario at this point. The guy was a neurosurgeon who was injured. His two sons were out on a motorcycle ride with him for Father's Day. He was an older guy. They were both full grown, also both physicians. And they watched the whole thing happen. They revived him and got him stabilized enough to get him to the hospital. And when he got to the hospital, he passed away. The carrier on that claim stroked a check for a million dollars within 48 hours. It was done. Like, we're out. Our duty to defend is over. We've exhausted the policy limits. And we're then done. you have no support. It's not even and that I you don't my- have more financial, but you don't even have anybody support you in the claim that has experience to handle it, which I think is also a value of having a carrier partnership is that they have experience in these kind of losses to negotiate, to arbitrate, to do all the other things. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so, so this gets even better. So the whole thing goes down. Carrier strokes the check. Family forgives the accident. There was wow. no lawsuit. The family, the family said, we know this was an accident. And as much as it hurts us, we understand that this was an accident. We're not going to sue you. We don't want to be malicious and take your company away, you know, try and take your company away from you or anything. They actually sent a handwritten note to the guy that was driving saying, as hard as this is on us, we know that this is also bothering you. Wow. And we're praying for you and, and all of this stuff. And I'm like... Okay, A, I need them as my friend because the world needs more people like that that can, you know, take the absolute worst scenario and then lead by example in in conducting yourself. So I go back to the to the client and I said, probably need to rethink that umbrella. You know, they just came in and stroked a million dollar check. Let me see what I can do. And I went back to the carrier. I negotiated that this was a one-time shock loss that it probably would never happen again and it would be very safe for them to go write the umbrella now. Do you know that the carrier came back with the exact same terms and conditions that they had before any of this ever happened and that joker still wow. didn't bind the umbrella? I mean, sometimes you can't. And they are out of You can't lead of, a horse to water sometimes, right? <laughs> they're out of business. Wow. They're out of business. Well, and today. that and that and that's what I what I try to tell people uh, you know, and how how you talk about this, and, and, and educating your friends and family and your network on what you're doing, and what what is this insurance thing that you do? I do not sell insurance. I am here to educate. That's what you were doing with your client. You're trying to educate them on a risk that they face, present them with options. If I have done my due diligence, I as a lawyer do save all those emails that I offered you X, Y, and Z. Don't come back and tell me that I didn't. I do save that. If you didn't buy it. Great. My job was to educate you. As long as I feel comfortable that I gave you all the facts and uh, scenarios and you still choose not to buy it, you know, that is your prerogative. Uh, But I I will also say one of my opinions, you alluded to this. I'm shocked when a a company in the United States doesn't buy at least at least three, if not five million. Every single company. You know, if you're a small guy, the price is going to be a small guy price. So saying you don't need it, well, the price is reflective of that. You know, that your revenues, your sales, the size of your business, that's all reflected in the kind of price that you get. But to say that you don't need um, at least $3 million, I just don't know any industry where I would never recommend. I tell people that that is my bottom line, what I recommend three, if not five. And depending on the industry and if you can afford it, I think you should go with 10. Um, and it's these kind of scenarios where you just don't know what kind of accidents can happen. Um, it's just, you, you don't know. And if you, if you're, if you care about your company and the, and the, and, and what it brings to your family or, you know, is it going to be a legacy thing? Are your kids going to be in it? Are you building up a, a, a legacy to, to move on or for other people, generations to have what, where is that point at which you'll let it, you'll let it go. Uh, because that's what you're talking about. If you have $8 million, I think you said was the revenue of, of that company. If you have $8 million revenue and you get a 7 or $8 million claim, are you going to survive? You need mm-hmm. to ask yourself that and discuss that. And, and those those are the kind yep. of decisions um, that have to be made. Um, but yeah, that's I'm, I, I have no words for how somebody <laughs> wouldn't accept that. Yeah. Well, well and, the, and the thing is, here, here's the bottom line. They weren't running their business right. They didn't have the money for the umbrella. And that's obvious by the fact they went out of business and filed bankruptcy. So 
you know, there were other poor decisions that led to that happening. Um, but, you know, it is. It's crazy. It blows my mind. So since I've been back, what I've heard a few things that I, I think are important. So much along the same line, that with, you know, with that, that contractor, um, I just had that conversation with one of my insureds about their auto. They had I mean, they're not a huge company. They're definitely not an $8 million company. But, you know, nonetheless, if they get in some sort of, you know, accident with 10 2010, they're not making it out of that. So I had that conversation. I'm like, look, you know, they were kind of all up, up in, not up in arms, but, you know, hesitant about making a move because they're going to have to pay a short rate of like six, 680 or something like that. I'm like, look, you guys get in and how many vehicles you drive around seeing, like if you hit a Beamer or a Mercedes, like, I mean, that's nope. not going to be a $10,000 claim. Like you're toast. So that, I mean, I, I can directly or, you know, relate with, with that um, aspect. And then I, I think, you know, the one thing that, that Crystal mentioned that I, I thought was important is just being like, you know, Hey, look, I'm, I'm not here to save you money. Like that's not my job. You know, I tell that people, I tell people that all the time, like that reach out saying, Hey, I want to see if I can save money on my insurance. I go, well, I mean, you probably called the wrong place because that's not what I'm going to you know, look to do. I mean, if we can, great. But my first order of business is making sure that your business is covered adequately, that if you have a claim that you're not going to be in a worse position than you are now or, or not have a business anymore. And almost every single time, the, you know, the, the price first cost thing, like you talked about, David, I thought it was, is a great example, but you know, it doesn't end up being about that at the end. They feel better that they know that they're covered properly right? Even if we increase, because most of the time I get, I get their, their info and their, their current policy is the exposure is way off sometimes five times, you know, what it, what it should be. And so that's, that's a whole nother conversation, but those were just a couple of things that I, you know, kind of wrote down while I was, and I don't know what the hell happened, but. Um. And I would also, <laughs> and on, on the heels of that great example, David, uh, and since both of you guys are in Florida, and if you have trucking or other clients, and for everybody that may be listening to the podcast that works in with any transportation risk, um, did, did you guys see the uh, verdict that came down um, for that uh, trucking loss in Florida? One billion with a B, one billion dollars. Yeah, like the overwhelming majority of it was um, nine hundred million impunitives. Impunitive damages. That's crazy. And think about this. And in insurance, how many times are punitive damages not covered? Like so specific, that's even, and then it depends on your policy. Yeah. Does your policy check the box? Punitives were allowable by law. Um, so those are the things that also you know uh, technical. Um, uh, brokers like ourselves on this call can uh, be of use to to clients. But when we go back to thinking about the trucking industry and any automotive, that flows all the way down to small guys, you know, all of it. Um, and so we all need to be aware of those when we're talking to our clients about those things. Great topic. Good conversation. I'm going to be respectful of time. I got to go because I got a three o'clock anyhow. But um all that to be said, Crystal, we can go forever. Like I, you're definitely coming back, whether you want to or not. <laughs> we will find you. We will bring you back on. This has been good conversation. We haven't even touched half of the stuff I wanted to talk about. So, thank you so much for coming on and spending time with us today. Greatly appreciated, Kyle. Thanks for joining us for half the podcast, man. Uh, you know, I, we, we appreciate should, like, that. Cut out did. halfway through. I couldn't see you guys at all or hear anything, and I'm I'm Only surprised I was able Kyle. to. Huh? Half of Kyle is still so valuable. It, it brought a lot. There we go. Yeah, it is. <laughs> we it's, only need it's half twice of you. as good as twice <laughs> yeah. as good as anybody else. Right. Everybody else, we will catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in. We will talk to you later. See ya. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes. And our website, killingcommercial.com. <laughs>